Welcome back, everybody, to the Brubble Podcast, a podcast exploring young voices and perspectives from in around the Brussels bubble. I'm your host, Simon. Today, we have an episode plan which I've been looking forward to for a while. So the themes of rights, representation, diversity, they're all values underlying the European Union and this Brussels bubble of ours. And they're also values which receive their fair share of debate and critique when we approach them from a feminist perspective. But what happens when we approach foreign policy from a feminist perspective? What does this tell us about our ways of interacting with other states in the world around us? And maybe circling back a little bit, what even is a feminist foreign policy? So joining me to discuss these big questions and shed some perspectives on all of this is Sophia. So Sophia, how are you today? I'm good, I'm good. We are approaching the International Women's Day, a lot of work for me, but overall good. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm hoping when people are listening to this, this should have gone live on Women's Day. So how will you be? Is celebrating the right term to use? I don't think celebrating is the right term, but I think I'm one of those who agrees on visibility and gains. At least it mm-hmm. makes some people to kind of have a day when you can rethink what has been happening, what the changes have been done during the year to you personally within your organization, country or wherever you come from. So I'm not extremely against the celebration word, but maybe more like a reflection and depending yeah. on what it means for you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I was going to ask at the end of the podcast to share some things that people should be keeping in mind or even looking out for to do on the day um, here in Brussels, uh, if you had any advice. But uh, we'll get to that at the end. So, you know, stick around, people, for your <laughs> action. <laughs> but Sophia, we talked about Women's Day, but we didn't, ta- we didn't talk about you. Can you tell us a bit who you are, what you do here in life, here in Brussels, in this beautiful city? Um, currently, I'm an independent consultant in climate, gender, and security on the intersection of those three topics, but also separately. Um, and I also founded my own organization, which is called VONA, which kind of does the same intersection on climate, gender, and security. And we provide educational and consultancy services to our clients. Yeah, sweet. Very interesting. And, and you have a bunch of experience from around the Brussels bubble as well. Because I, I remember you're being quite humble here, but I remember looking over your LinkedIn and you had, I think, experience in the European Parliament and a few other organizations. So, I'm, I'm in Brussels already for five years. Came as a trainee, as every one of us probably does, <laughs> to stay only for six months. And then Brussels bubble kind of grasps you. So since then, I did already the German Marshall Fund, College of Europe, NATO Parliamentary Assembly and European Parliament. And throughout all of those organizations, I worked on gender, climate, and security intersection. Climate came a bit later, Hmm. but gender and security and foreign policy has been with me since the beginning of the journey. Yeah, I do find fascinating how climate is now migrating into it, if you excuse the pun. Because I was was having my COP27 episode, too, where I was talking uh, with the person I had on who went to COP27. And she was also discussing how the climate gender nexus or even the climate identity nexus is is, it's growing more and more as we see the the inequalities between those experiencing the impacts of climate change and climate action. So it's super fascinating to keep an eye out. And even security works in the climate, too. So. Indeed. I think they have more in common than some people might think before. And I think they they face similar challenges and there are similar ways of how to integrate and mainstream those two topics into security and foreign policy. And I think they kind of strive for the same bigger goal in the end. So therefore, I decided to took upon both of them and then trying to kind of bring them hand in hand instead of trying to focus only on gender or only on climate, because... Even focusing on one topic is hard with some foreign policy and security people. So 
once they are on climate, I'm like, okay, there is also gender there. Or if they are on gender, I'm like, okay, climate is also important. Let's include both of them. And that kind of makes it a bit more fulfilling. Yeah, because it's always, I think gender is one of those issues which is prevalent in all topics everywhere because it's so fundamental to, I don't want to say the human condition, I'll sound too much like a philosophy major, but uh, (laughs) it's just super important to keep in mind when you deal with everyday life and implications of what you do. And I was going to ask too, having been in Brussels for so long, how have you kind of seen the gender debate or conversation evolve or or devolve over time? Hopefully not devolve, but... (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I mean... I think that in Brussels there was always a diversity of voices. So I wouldn't say that some feminist debates on different issues has is something new for Brussels. It's been here for already, I think, decades, even before I and you arrived to Brussels. But when it comes to gender in foreign policy and security, I think those topics are something that is still developing, growing, which feels weird because women, peace and security agenda has been there already for more than 20 years. But I think for some people, it kind of was something that is out there, separate, not really connected to what is happening here in real world. And we have our problems to tackle. So gender is something like sidelined. Mm-hmm. Now, I think it's becoming a bit more mainstreamed and there are more realization there. Yet, I think it's still very limited. And um, I think we're doing some progress when it comes to representation We are also getting there when it comes to some resources. So I see that there are a lot of programs that are trying to become more gender sensitive and uh, there are people who want to include women at all stages. But we still lack women at senior roles when it comes to ambassadors, military personnel, police, ministers in the end. And um, also in terms of resources, I think sometimes it's just also pinkwashing in a way. And I think this yeah. is also a theme of this year's 8th of March, as I saw from some organizations, this sort of pinkwashing on like, where do we actually have gender equality and where it's still just being put there as a target without really any substance on it. Yeah, because it's, it's interesting to keep in mind, because gender's always been a huge, at least in the last few years, talking point coming out the commission, the parliament. And we do see, like, the commission right now, it has von der Leyen. She's the first uh, ever female secretary general of the, com- of the commission. So it, it's interesting to see how these voices being put forward, but are the structures actually there behind it? Indeed, yeah. I suppose on that point, talking a bit about, you know, EU foreign policy, let's maybe transition a bit to what is so, so often called feminist foreign policy. One of the reasons why I was excited about doing this is because I come from Canada, or I grew up in Canada, as you can tell from the accent. It's not American to those listening out there. Um, But we claim to have a feminist foreign policy, and we're in league with states like Sweden who also have a feminist foreign policy. And quite, you know, topically, Germany recently adopted one too, only a week ago or so, and New Zealand's also an advocate. Are these good examples of feminist foreign policy, and and what do they have in common? I mean, first of all, Sweden resigned from feminist foreign policy earlier, no, later last year already. And uh, because of their far-right government who said we don't need the word feminist in order to represent what we are doing, we are all very gender-mindful people. But I think that from everyone I talked to from Sweden so far, they have been very positive in terms of the fact that because feminist foreign policy has been there since 2014, it's so internalized by now, mostly in everything what Sweden does, which means that it's not just so easy to just resign from feminist foreign policy and, and stop doing this because people learn to do things one way and they keep doing it no matter what. 
Um, you rightly say that there are quite a lot of countries, but still not enough, joining the, the feminist foreign policy table, I would say. I think they're around 10 to 20, depending on what you define. Like France has feminist diplomacy. Then recently Chile joined as well. There are some countries who kind of announced some sort of spectrums of feminist foreign policy or are still developing. I heard the rumors that Belgium also potentially is considering developing feminist foreign policy as much diplomatic I can be in this case. Um, but those were just, just not even the rumors, but I, I just read some articles. Um, what unites those countries? Um, I think that Sweden kind of when they started the feminist foreign policy, they defined it through three R's which is rights, representation, and resources. And um, I, I can go a bit in depth to trying to explain what those are. So rights is basically ensuring that the rights of everyone is equal. And here we go beyond men and women, of course, but some countries do not take it beyond we- men and women. Then representation. So that's also obvious one uh, to kind of ensure the equal representation at all levels. So it's not only that we have women in our ministry and then you see Rightfully so, 50% of staff is women, but then you look at the ambassadors or at the military high representatives, and then you see that there are less than 10% of women out there. So representation at at all levels, and then also representation, which means diverse representation. So not only white middle class women from global north, but also the diversity out there. And then if it's the table, discussing some policy, then civil society organizations, the representatives of different diverse groups that are involved within the matters, they also have to be represented. And resources, because all of this, what we're discussing here, requires people, staff. Sometimes uh, huge institutions like to come up with amazing initiatives, goals, targets, but they, when you see how much money they put into there or how much people are going to implement this, and if you see that, um, I mean, just an example, a ministry would have a department of five people to implement the whole foreign policy and make it feminist, I mean, it will take them decades, I guess, to, mm-hmm. to do this. So this has to be supported by, by substantive resources. And I think that's what, for simplicity, a lot of countries are taken as a kind of blueprint to start with, and then they add depending on what are their more specific needs. And then they go into more details in terms of explaining what is rights, resources for them. I think that uh, some countries, I think including even Germany, has diversity in addition to this to kind of put more emphasis on not only women, but also different marginalized groups which are excluded from foreign policy so far. So it goes as various as it has to go, but the three R, I think, is the most kind of known approach to feminist foreign policy. Kind of the basics that you kind of need in place. Indeed. Would you add anything to that, to those three R's? It doesn't have to be an R, but do you think foreign, feminist foreign policy as it is today, should it evolve from that standard definition of those three R's? Mm, to me they seem very standard, like it kind of puts you in this box and you're like, okay, check, 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 and you are done. Because for me, feminist foreign policy is an evolving thing, like it never ends. I don't think you can ever call your policy or foreign policy feminist, because there is always work to do. Like Mm -hmm. as many wars will be happening in in this world, 
as many apocalypses or whatever health viruses we will be having. Like there is always something to change, something to adapt. And I think that's also the beauty of it. I think that's kind of not not the beauty in terms of apocalypses and, and all the crises, but in terms yeah. of having this self-reflection moment and seeing what did I do wrong? What could I do better? And um, starting from personalities, all of us who go and vote for those people who then represent us, all those people who represent us, whenever they do something, like from time to time, just have a reflection process that everything what I did so far, like we discussed in the beginning for this International Women's Day, I hope it will serve as this reflection moment time for those people to kind of analyze everything what they did, but really critically and and see also the, the bad parts of it. So not only mentioning like, I did this and I'm very happy I managed to do something good for gender equality. Well done. Every mm-hmm. action counts, but also see what could have been done differently because we all have biases and like they keep appearing, disappearing, re- reappearing sometimes. So I think that's this like self-reflection moment. I think that's something what I would add to feminist foreign policy. It is an R, so you're doing well here. Yeah, self-reflection, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> or just reflection, yeah. No, because it was interesting, because when you went on and, and started defining feminist foreign policy, something that doesn't ever end. But I think some critics of it, or, or, or naysayers to some extent, might look to it and say, feminist foreign policy, it, it's only a band-aid solution over the structural issues of gender misrepresentation. Once, you know, gender equity, not that it could really ever be achieved, once it's better, you know, balanced out, do we even need a feminist foreign policy then? Well, I hope we won't need it then. So far as it's like, I don't know, with with the best concept that we have been able to find so far that they're saying like they are there because nothing better has been invented yet. I mean, I do hope that at some point we would not have to talk about representation of women because it will be a done deal and we would have a society that is equally represented at all levels the rights that are assured and we just have like human rights are human rights and we have the the human rights and we don't need to discuss women's rights specifically because we assume that women's rights are human rights. But unfortunately, seeing how how this whole thing has been developing so far and considering the the recent examples in history, I do not believe this happening anytime soon. Yeah. So therefore, I think so so far creating a strategy and a guidelines of feminist foreign policy has been one of the best decisions that has been happening, at least from what I have been able to research. There are, of course, different interpretations of it and different people want to put it in a different ways. Some people do not like the word feminist. You can put something else instead of it. But I think those who are working in the paradigm of feminist foreign policy, we all do the same things or similar things. And we all strive to, as I said in the beginning, towards kind of this bigger common goal. Mm -hmm. And I think one of those is kind of assuring human security at all levels or kind of dismantling patriarchy if I can put it this way and um, yeah might 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 sound radical to some people or destroying the power structures that we have had so far because we proved that those are are not working and those are the ones that kind of are preventing the society to evolve mm-hmm. I mean it does sound radical to some extent but that's because we're sitting here in Brussels right we have to remember that we have a lot of progress still to do for, for women's rights and, and the feminist movement, the modern feminist movement. I, I will preface that. And, but when we look towards the global south, if 
I can use that term, they would benefit from more radical solutions to help them drive that progress. And do you think that feminist foreign policy is a solution for them? Are there any examples from the global south where we see feminist foreign policy working? I mean, Chile announced in 2022, I think they're still growing on that and they're still developing the, the, the whole idea of what it's going to be for them. Mm-hmm. Mexico has been there in place for a while. I mean, oh. the, the mm-hmm. case of Mexico is an interesting one because I think externally they are doing not a bad job and mm-hmm. they are trying to have a gender component in their foreign and development policy. But domestically, it raises some questions. At the same time, they have very vibrant uh, civil society in Mexico that it serves as a counterpart to, to some governmental actions at the domestic level. Um, might be an interesting part also to mention that despite the fact that we talk about feminist foreign policy, it starts at home. And like, if you want to start doing feminist foreign policy, you have to make sure your house is in order. You can't just be having um, problems with with feminism and still not defining Mm -hmm. what's happening inside, but then going outside and kind of telling everyone that as of now you're a feminist, if inside you're not delivering. In Global South, I would not think that they, I would not say that they are lacking behind. I think that they have a lot of feminists inside who are also looking at the topic and who have been writing on it for decades. They might be put in different terms on the topic. I think for them, intersectionality, intersectional feminism is something that works. But at the same time, the voices of a lot of Global South people have been silent and uh, they were not really provided that much space. So therefore, the feminist foreign policy, as we see the most today, I think is the one that comes from Global North still. As Sweden has coined it, it and uh, a lot of scholars kind of picked it up. But it doesn't mean that in Global South this discussion hasn't been happening. I think it was just happening in a different paradigm, in a different societies. And I think the role of Global North right now and all of us is to kind of provide that more space for people from Global South to be heard, to be included, equal at our tables. So not to mm. organize this table for representatives from Mexico to discuss of their uh, their view on feminist foreign policy, but it should be a view on feminist foreign policy and representatives from all countries who stand with this term would be invited and would be heard. Yeah, no, fair enough. I, I think leading a bit by example, but also by creating the space, I, assent, I assume, opening the doors in a sense. Indeed. Hmm. And the people do like to point out some of the first female leaders or heads of states were from the global south. I believe India had a very influential prime minister who was female. I forget her name. Apologies, I didn't do my research for this. I think yeah. that even today, you would be surprised. I participated recently. I co-authored a security index, which is quite known in the gender equality circles as well. And it kind of goes into evaluating the representation of women in peace and security across different levels, across more than 100 countries. And you can see that some global South countries are doing much better than global North countries, even at the point of representation. Of course, if we're going to go to in more details, the rights and resources probably will be a bit lagging behind, but also for obvious reasons why global South doesn't have enough resources and global North does. We will not going to go there into the topic of colonialism and so on and so forth. But yeah, I think there is more work to be done, but also not in a way that global North imposes. But I think... We, we should be learning from each other and seeing where one can step in and or give the space to, to another one and step down. Yeah, yeah. I think we're 
nearing the end of our theoretical discussion on, you know, feminist foreign policy and everything. Do you want to take a stab at it? What is feminist foreign policy? <laughs> I, I know it might seem awkward because we started the whole episode talking about a vague illusion, which you have some idea of what it means, but can we narrow down definition or should we? Mm, I would want to leave it with the questions. I would want the listeners maybe to remember that feminist foreign policy is about human security and it means the security of all, of all the humans. Feminist foreign policy is by far not only about women. Mm-hmm. Climate topics, health, um, all of those type of things that worry all of us, I think they are included and covered by feminist foreign policy. It opens the doors. It questions the things and the structures that have been there for a while. And um, I think it's something where everyone would feel a little bit better. And I think even those who kind of feel good within the power structures in which they are there now, it might be shaky when we are going to try to change it. And how it's going to be, no one knows yet, I think. But in the end, I do believe that it kind of benefits all of us and I do hope that it will provide that just, peaceful and equal world that we are all fighting for. Yeah, fair enough. That seems like a great place to end it, but I don't want to end it yet. <laughs> I still wanted to talk a little bit, you know, that topical topic of Germany, if you want to dis- touch on that. Because they recently announced, I think about a week ago from when we're recording now, that they published a, a massive 86-page document, uh, some light, you know, bedtime reading, uh, detailing their foreign policy, you know, goals, which was a new feminist foreign policy. Um, it was a nice paper. I can't admit I've gone for most of it. I read a few <laughs> titles here and there. But, Sophia, did, did you take a take a gander? Did you take a look at that paper? Any thoughts on their directions? Germany has been thinking about their feminist foreign policy for a while, and I think that they did, in a way, a good job in terms of trying to talk to different parts of the society and uh, talk to those who are involved or have been involved in the topic for a while. Um, The 84 pages document, I think, is also more to kind of explain to everyone within the ministry as well as beyond on like what it actually means, because as we already noticed, feminist foreign policy means something else for everyone. And then when the minister, um, Annalena Baerbock, was given her speech, she also started from the fact that what is feminist and that not everyone feels comfortable with the word feminist. So she kind of tried to explain that the feminist foreign policy is going to cover not only women, but they focused a lot on the marginalized groups. Um, I did also a bit of a deeper research, not only on the document, but what were the, the exact promises in terms of the rights and resources. So I already saw that there are some substantial topics such as 12 billion euros of the German development funds in projects will tackle gender inequality according to the foreign and the development ministry guidelines. And then at least 8% of Germany's development fund will be allocated to projects with gender equality as their main goal. So I think that there are some kind of developments and it's already kind of you walk the talk in a way, Mm. so you don't only establish the feminist foreign policy without giving any substance to it. Mm, I also love the fact that they looked at marginalized groups, and I think for Germany it is critically important because gender equality itself has been there for a while already, and I think they have been doing some sort of work, but then the marginalized group topic is still something where Germany is kind of trying to see what could be done more. 
they actually included also the the critical self-reflection part in it. There you go. (laughs) I do not know to what extent and what it means yet. I think it's more was referring to ministries itself. Mm. And I think for a lot of people, it's usually confusing to see when you start talking about feminist foreign policy, there is a substantial part that is developed to domestically how you should change. And they usually start from ministries starting from recruiting more women to providing a better work conditions, maternity, paternity leaves, tackling internal sexual and gender-based violence harassment, because that also keeps happening even in our amazing global north, which is super developed. Okay, I'm being... I'm being <laughs> kind Quote, of, unquote, right? <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, so I think that kind of the self-reflection slash workshops, trainings that would have to happen with internal staff, because it's a lot about feminist foreign policy is a lot about changing the way you think and view things. It's kind of like a lens that kind of gets into your mind. And as of now, everything you do, you should have in mind feminist mm-hmm. foreign policy. It has to have this tangible criteria like 85% here, $12 million or euros there. Those things are important, but it's also in terms of what every human does at their work and how do they approach their work as of now. So I think that this self-reflection approach is something that I liked. Um, there are also a lot, many more technical things. I think there will be an ambassador for feminist foreign policy, really? which is something that some countries, including your country, Canada... Well, I, I definitely knew that. <laughs> uh, ...has to... <laughs> I think it's it's a good way. Like, some people are usually... And also when you talk to those ambassadors, they always say, I hope my job will not be needed in a bit. Yeah. And it kind of is self-understandable, but in the beginning, I think it's in, it's important when you have someone to overview what has been happening. And of course, the main work will always be within the embassies of the countries on the ground, as well as with the ministry. But having someone who overviews and keep it keeps it all together, keeps people accountable as well, I think it's a good trait to have, as well as represents, because... There are not many countries who started the feminist foreign policy, and I know that there is already some sort of clubs for those feminist foreign policy people and countries. So they gather together, they exchange the experiences, they share what they have been doing, what is good, what is bad. And at those forums, they kind of also learn from each other. And um, just for this type of representation role, ambassadors are important. Yeah, yeah. They have this uh, air to them, I suppose. Indeed, yeah. But I, I did want to note, uh, as jotting in my mind, I, I think that lens approach you were talking about, it speaks well to what you were t- saying about Sweden, where they you know, left that feminist foreign policy approach behind them, but they were still having that, the thoughts of it in their mind, like the lens is still there. It's hard to turn off once it's been institutionalized for so many years. So. Indeed, yeah. yeah. It's just the way people were doing foreign policy for the past seven to eight years. So you can't yeah. just change it by taking the word out. My last question I wanted to ask you about, Sophia, it, I think it, it's a bit closer to home for you because I believe you are Ukrainian, right? And you're impacted by the tragedies going on in that part of the world right now. And you have been doing some writings also on the need for a feminist perspective when, or even a feminist foreign policy perspective when it comes to even how Ukraine is dealing itself with the war. 
Did you want to elaborate on that a little? Because I, I don't know if I'm the best person to, you know, detail that properly. I mean, there will be a piece coming out in a few weeks, so for sure go ahead and read that. I don't want to disclose all the cards, but I think mm-hmm. that since the war uh, in Ukraine started, or Russian full-scale invasion in Ukraine started, because I think we need to name the enemy yeah. first, there were a lot of feminists who were writing to me and they were like, or the debates I was seeing on Twitter, who were like, oh, where is your feminist foreign policy right now? Like, why is it not working? And then a lot of foreign policy and security people were like, okay, feminist foreign policy will not work. We need a hardcore geopolitics. Then a lot of feminists would argue that delivering weapons to Ukraine is anti-feminist. So there were a lot of debates happening out there. And I think this is kind of where we get lost sometimes in the theorization of the topic and we kind of forget to see the real impact because in the end feminist foreign policy would be about how you affect countries outside of your country like of course you need to tidy up your house but in the end it would be what you do outside and I think the Ukraine example is something what is very bright considering some countries have been quite advanced on what they have been doing on feminist foreign policy but yet when it came to this war i think gender women's rights feminist foreign policy something that started being discussed only a month afterwards and in the beginning it was truly not ukrainians talking about this at least not because we don't have the voice but just because we were not invited to those debates and um in a way as I said, feminist foreign policy is about human security. And I think sometimes delivering weapons, even though feminists are usually anti-weapon, is, is the right thing to do to secure those humans. And I think the Ukraine example has been the brightest case in all of this, also the most kind of vivid case whenever yeah. you see explicitly one country invading another country, which maybe was less vivid with, with other conflicts happening recently. But... I also do believe if we really had feminist foreign policy countries that kind of have this coalition and that work together and walk their talk, then we would not have people like Putin in this world. Or mm. at least if they would be, they would be not so powerful. Or we would have a system that would be able to stop them sooner and uh, more effectively, rather than in the beginning we would think, oh, what about my money? What about my economic situation? I really cannot do anything because we are very energy dependent on this country and I think this is our main priority for now and starting acting only later on once already thousands of lives have been lost. So feminist foreign policy kind of centers the human security and looks at humans as the main value and then everything else comes afterwards. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it because those our concerns that you hear. And then I think that's, a, like you said, a very vivid demonstration. I can't really add any more to that, <laughs> I suppose. Yeah. And more you can read in my paper. There yes. will be some personal reflections, also reflections of my colleagues who, who went with me on the Feminist Foreign Policy Fellowship to the U.S. And we were a cohort from Global South and North, from different countries. And um, I hope that we will have very personal stories as well. You could see examples of Ukraine and other countries, why feminist foreign policy matters. Yeah, and where would they be able to find this paper once it gets published? It will be published at Heinrich Boll Stiftung website, but I cannot tell you at which office yet. But if you follow me, I surely will promote it as much as possible yeah. and probably organize something in Brussels so we could all meet and discuss it. So 
Stay yeah. tuned. I'll drop uh, your LinkedIn and Twitter or whatever socials you want in the description. Indeed. Thank you. I suppose on the topic of events going forward or milestones in a sense, I did want I did want to go full circle where I teased at the beginning that I wanted to ask you, what should we, as in us in Brussels, be doing for Women's Day? Is there any events we should keep an eye out for? Is there any lessons or thoughts you want to leave in our mind as we go to I don't want to say celebrate again, to reflect. <laughs> yeah, I think it will be a good way to to finalize it, to say that, like, to reflect. And, I mean, there, there are dozens of events happening in Brussels mm-hmm. and probably beyond Brussels as well, starting from more formal debates to more informal conversations to some drinks and uh, dinner types. I think everyone can choose whatever feeds them. I don't want to be promoting any particular yeah. one because I do not know if there is anyone which will be better. It, all differs depending on what particular topics of gender equality you're interested in, either it's digital or security or climate or all of those together. There will also be a lot of marches, I think, happening around Brussels, which I think some people also find good joining to kind of scream out everything that has been staying there inside of you. As long as there are no tractors is my criteria, but... (laughs) (laughs) I think whatever helps, if tractors help, we will bring the tractors. (laughs) Um, But um, I think I started valuing a lot this as we started talking about this self-reflection. Like, no matter which event you go for, no matter which type of discussion you want to join... Even if you don't want to join anything, just maybe just have this moment of self-reflection. Just like, I don't know, take 10, 15 minutes for yourself, write it down or think it through, meditate it through, whatever helps, whatever works for you, walk it through. And just like think about the year that has passed, a year ahead of you, the work you have been doing, the way you have been treating your closest ones, and then think what you've done great, where you improved or where you still need to do some work. What you maybe want to learn more about, maybe you have, it's your first time hearing what is feminist foreign policy and you just got very much interested and you want to know more or you want to learn something else. There is a lot out there to learn. Same as for myself. I am an expert on the topic, but learning never ends for me. I'm always trying to sign up for some trainings, courses, workshops to Mm -hmm. challenge myself even more and see what's there more. So choose something that, that works for you put it down and maybe deliver on it within the next year. Perfect. I think that's some great advice to wrap us up on here. Thank you for the invitation. No worries. Thanks for coming on. I think it was a a great opportunity, even for myself, to reflect a little and and take those lessons into Women's Day and and the days I will check on your reflection in a few days. (laughs) Well, I didn't expect this, but I have homework now, I see. But, uh, and you, the listener, if, if you enjoyed this episode, please, you know, like, subscribe, share around, and, you know, stay tuned for our next episode. I think the next one, unless my guest falls sick again, <laughs> uh, should be on politics and emotions, which is somewhat related. So it should Indeed. be an interesting one. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, goodbye, everybody. Thank you. Bye.